0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer and today I'm speaking with Deborah Ramsey, author of Archives of War, Technology, Emotion, and History, published by Rutledge in July 2023. Archives of War offers a comparative analysis of British Army unit war diaries in the two world wars to reveal the role played by previously unnoticed technologies in shaping the archival records of war. Despite thriving scholarship on the history of war, the history of operational record keeping in the British Army remains unexplored. And this book is the first to consider unit war diaries as mediated material artifacts with their own history through a unique comparative analysis of the unit war diaries of the first and second world wars. This book uncovers the mediated processes involved in the practice of operational reporting and reveals how hidden technologies and ideologies have shaped the official record of warfare. And Deborah Ramsey lectures in film and television studies at the University of Ex- Exeter in the UK. Uh, Deborah, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, and before we talk about your latest book, I would love if you could share a little bit with listeners about your own background, uh, where you grew up and went to university, and what brought you to your research in war and memory and media.
0: Sure. So. I was born into a military family in South Africa. Um, my grandfather and my father were both in the South African Air Force. And I grew up during apartheid era, South Africa. And I think both of those things influenced what later became um, my interest in war media and memory. I went to a really liberal university. I went to the University of the Witwatersrand for my first degree. And you know, growing up in a military family, that also sometimes means you're growing up in quite a conservative environment. And the liberal university was really the first time that I had opportunity to kind of understand that the things that were happening on campus, which were then reported in the news, um, there was a massive discrepancy between those things. And for the first time I, I started realizing, oh, the media in this country is really controlled. It's serving a particular set of interests. And I think that from from around then on, I I started becoming very passionate about understanding how and why media operate the way they do, whose interests they serve, especially during times of conflict when those relationships become even more important. So yeah, I think both of those things, the military family and growing up in a country where the media was controlled by the government. Really, um, set apart for me to have a look at media conflict and memory.
1: Wow, yeah, that's a like a really, um, I guess a, a fascinating place and like cross section of um, of experiences to come to this from. So then, turning to this book, Archives of War. Uh, in this book, you're examining British unit war diaries from the two world wars. And you asked questions about the life cycle of these so far, uh, from creation to archiving. And I'm curious about what motivated your work on this book, what gap you see it filling in the scholarship, and what questions you set out to answer with it.
0: Okay, so the roots of this book really lay in an earlier project that I worked on along with uh, Professor Andrew Hoskins from the University of Glasgow. And we were looking at... the british army and the national archives to try and understand how these two institutions were coping with changes in the digital era so that was an ethnographic study of both of those two institutions and what links them are these records so i started looking at the unit war diaries and i started developing a fascination with them because not only are they kind of underrepresented in history but they're also weirdly the foundations of a lot of history that gets written about world wars. And one of the things that really struck me as a media scholar was how both the archives and the users of the archives and the army itself had various ways of thinking about these documents as unmediated. So the archives would talk about them as windows to the past and people would talk about them as You know, being able to see into the past and the army would talk and historians would talk about them as information, almost as if they were just neutral sets of stuff. So the first gap really um, was that although these documents are the foundation to so much history, their own history had never been examined and especially their history as mediated artifacts in the world. And then the second gap came because... Um, Lisa Katelman writes so eloquently about how when we think of media, we tend to think of the media with a capital M, right? So we think of film, television, games. I mean, that's my background as well. Those are the things that I've been looking at over the years. But actually, we forget that documents like this are as much mediated representations of war as a war film, a war documentary, and use, and use real on, on a particular event in the war. And also, I think we tend to think of things, the technologies that create these documents, um, you know, the pens, the pencils initially, then the typewriters and the documents themselves, we tend to forget that those are as much technologies of media as the bigger things like cameras and uh, various other forms of media. So. Th- Those are the two gaps really. And then I think identifying those gaps raised some questions for me, like um, if these are mediated representations of conflict, what are they allowing us to understand about conflict? What is their mediated form? How is that playing into what they represent of conflict? So how do these technologies actually shape what is in these reports? Or do they shape what is in these reports? And ultimately, therefore, if we have a look at those questions, ultimately, the kind of bigger overarching question is then not only how do they shape how we understand war, but how do they also maybe shape how war continues to be waged. So those were the questions and the gaps that I started thinking about at the beginning.
1: Super, thank you. Uh, So let's dive into talking about the first chapter. And in the first chapter, you look at uh, the unit war diaries from the First World War. Um, I thought you explained really clearly here that um, this all this bureaucracy is ideological. So, could you start by describing those World War One records for us? What what kind of records were being kept? How they were being created, and why the army was mandating this kind of record keeping?
0: Okay, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with the last question first. Sure. Like why 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 that happened. So the general response or the general understanding of why these records came to be is because of the South African wars. So there were during the South African wars, there were a number of failures of communications, of command and control in the British army that the army felt it needed to address. But even more importantly, there were a series of histories on the South African wars, popular histories that came out in Britain that were quite critical of the army. So the army wanted, there was an impulse to kind of take back control over its own history as an institution. So when these records became mandated, they had two particular purposes. The first, interestingly enough, was to provide an accurate account of events for historical writing, for historiography. The second was to provide information to allow the army to wage war more effectively, and I think that order is, there's something really interesting in that order. But I think what's overlooked often is that the British Army over the course of the um, 1800s and into the 1900s had been undergoing a series of restructures and reorganizations that eventually was leading to it emerging as a bureaucratic institution. And in bureaucratic institutions, one of the things that you get is a separation or a division of labor according to particular skills. So in the army, very simply what that meant was you've got a separation of admin from those who are fighting war, among other things. So you've got a whole class of officers who are now primarily concerned with running the organization. And the minute you do that, right, Any organization then needs to start record keeping because the information is no longer kept within the head of a particular charismatic leader or um, a particular individual. It now needs to be kept somewhere so that the whole organization can access it. So that's when record keeping comes about. So. I think that's another reason for the implementation of these records, and they are mandated through something called the Field Service Regulations, or the FSR, the Army Loves An Acronym, it drove me mad when I was writing the book, they're just acronyms everywhere, um, and initially they were called War Diaries, and I, I continue to call them that through the book, because that's how they are referred to in World War One and World War Two. But today we'd understand these as operational reporting or operational record keeping, as it's now known in the British Army. And what they are is they are daily, sometimes hourly accounts of events that every single unit in the British Army, right from the lowest unit all the way up to headquarters, has to keep from the moment of deployment um, until it uh, or the moment of, from the start of hostilities at this stage until hostilities uh, stop. And they're to be filled out on a form called the Army Form C2118. And that form, the structure of that form really also kind of shapes what goes in them. So the one, it's in three columns the one is for time, date, and place. The middle column is for the description of events. And then the third column is to connect those events to any other documents or. uh, comments. Um, they were meant to be as clear and as concise as possible, removing any kind of emotional language, and the instructions for that is are quite e- explicit. Um, and they were also meant to, the instructions were for people to avoid becoming too enamoured of embellishing their narratives. So they were meant to be concise. And in World War I, Most there's a tendency to handwrite them. The typewriter is available, and there are typewritten uh, World War I unit war diaries but I was particularly interested in the ones that were handwritten. Super,
1: thank you. And I am so glad you mentioned all of these uh, detailed instructions on (laughs) uh, removing emotion from how these reports are written because uh, you do explain in this book how the the forms were designed as neutral containers, uh, but you did a lot of really rich textual analysis on how these records were also still an emotional practice in spite of the form itself. So could you explain your methodology for the analysis and then explain for listeners what you discovered?
0: Okay. Right. So firstly, the methodology. Um, I think one of the interesting things about official forms like this is that no matter what they are, they always mediate the relationship between individual and institution, right? But it's also a space in which individuality sometimes, almost against the odds, surfaces. And what I was seeing in my initial pass at these documents was how that happened was through emotion. Now, emotion is a really slippery concept. It has its own history. It's not understood in the same way across time. And it's also not understood in the same way across different cultures, right? I mean, as a South African, um, for example, I'm often thought, especially in Britain, the way I talk is often, sometimes assumed to be aggressive when in actual fact from a south african perspective it's not so that's one example of a kind of cultural difference right um but all of that poses real problems for researchers because how do you identify and pinpoint emotion then and i was looking at these documents and thinking right so i'm thinking of emotion but what does that actually mean how do i pinpoint that how do i pin that down and one of the things that I found really helpful was Monique Skier's idea of emotion as an embodied practice. So that practice occurs within a social context. Uh, that social context is also historically located as well as culturally located. And all of those things shape that practice. Now, as a practice, you are also leaving traces of emotion. And those traces of emotion can be either something you've written, something drawn, uh, something in language, whatever it is. So I started thinking, right, well, what are the traces of emotion that I can can identify in these documents? Um, And I narrowed them down to three. Um, The first is through language. So, and here William Reddy's idea of emotives became really useful. So emotives are words or phrases that evoke some kind of emotion. They don't necessarily represent exactly what the person is feeling because that's impossible to pinpoint, but they are part of an emotional uh, performance, perhaps. Um, So emotives, the use of language. So those we had to mark and tag manually, and then we analysed those across the corpus using linguistic software called ANCONC. The second thing was punctuation. I know that sounds really weird, but I noticed that in some instances, um, things like exclamation marks, particularly the exclamation mark, the exclamation mark at the time is also understood historically as something that should only be in florid writing. So, um, you know, um, novels that were um, part of the, of pulp fiction rather than serious, serious writing. And yet here every now and then an exclamation mark would pop up. So the exclamation mark is kind of it's also an emotional practice because it's it's insisting at some kind of emotion that we can't really identify in words. But it's being used in a way that's saying there is something here. And then the last thing was embellished narration because the instructions are not to create long stories. And yet in some of the diaries, you've got these long, involved narratives of events, probably written after they've taken place. So in terms of what I discovered in the World War I diaries, I think the most important thing to understand is the idea of these documents as flat and emotionless or as neutral forms of information it is simply not true. They, they are documents in which men are attempting to process um, unprecedented experiences into in, through this 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 mediated form. And I think it's really easy for us to forget in an age where we're continually encountering images of war um, in films, in television, in digital games, in photographs, it's really easy to forget that in World War I, these men did not have any of those references. They had no idea of what um, industrial warfare was actually going to be like. Um, so, uh, the emotives that surface are very often more positive than negative. There's a downplaying of any negative emotion. And that, I think, very well in, my cor- in the corpus that I was looking at anyway. I think one of the things to mention here is that, you know, there are thousands, millions of these documents. So, I looked at a portion of them. But from what I was seeing, generally things like fear... Um, is that was there's almost no mention of fear. Um, you might get reference to men being shaken, but that's not very often, and that's really surprising, right? Considering that this is a war in which shell shock emerges as a, a condition, a, a response to warfare. The most, the most you kind of get in response to difficult situations is a, a, a phrase, very trying or trying. And then, you know, things were pretty horrific, if, if especially if that phrase is uh, repeated. So for me, these were instances of nudging against the constraints of the form. But you but most often get instances where em- there's a lot of emphasis on cheeriness on, and this feeds into the, the idea of the British soldier as maintaining a stiff upper lip. A lot of emphasis on coolness as well. My, one of my favorite moments is that, that description of the officer who lands up horrifically on the wire in No Man's Land and apparently says to his men, push on without me, don't mind me. So you've got these kinds of performances of coolness, whether or not they're really happening. Um, I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but I'm saying that the emotional practices are ways of passing these and processing these un- precedented events. So in terms of narration you also get these long detailed accounts and they also those tend to conform to ideas of how men should behave, of how things should go, of how regiments should have their glory recognized and um, acknowledged. So it's not that these documents are emotionless. There are clear instances of emotional practice but I think the surprising thing for me was realizing that that emotional practice is conforming to the emotional practice and expectations of broader society and also of
1: the British Army itself,
0: even though it is nudging at the
1: constraints of the form. Yeah, thank you, thank you for such a clear explanation of what you discovered through all of that. Um, I, I mean, as someone who spends a lot of time working in in archives. Um, I feel like I rarely get to work with folks who are doing such a detailed analysis of every word and punctuation mark in in the record. And it, it kind of opened my eyes to what we can learn. Um, so then moving on to the second chapter, this is where you um, shift to the records of the Second World War. Uh, so how was British Army unit record keeping different during this war in terms of the technologies for record keeping and then how can we still trace emotion in these records compared to the records of the first world war do we see resistance in those records or has the bureaucratic record, record keeping really eliminated the like messiness quote unquote of emotion
0: i think one of the first things is Um, And maybe because in the First World War records, and this is something that's really difficult to prove, but it's my sense. Um, The First World War records really eliminates any um, references to chaos or extreme emotion. So if anything, the British Army, and there are other reasons for this. It's not just about the records, but there are other reasons for this. The British Army emerges from the First World War with... An intensification of its belief in bureaucratic systems as a means of imposing order on the chaos of war. And central to those systems still is the unit war diary. Um, so you see the same kind of implementation, the same rules, very similar rules around the implementation of these records in the Second World War. One of the differences is that the typewriter, although it is around in World War One and it is used in the trenches, um, it really comes into its own in World War Two as a machine of war. And I was fascinated by the American Army's approach to the typewriter, kind of seeing it as an essential machine of war, as essential as a a rifle or any other kind of equipment. So when we think of the typewriter, initially it is a technology that comes about, it's a machine of efficiency, it's sold as very much um, as something that is going to maximize efficiency and dehumanize writing. So there's lots of concerns about that among authors, etc. And I think we still sometimes today think of handwritten notes as more personal. So there's this idea of this machine as a dehumanized kind of technology. Um, And an indication of that, again, one of my favorite discoveries about the typewriter, right, was that it's only very recently that typewriters actually had exclamation marks put on them. So to make an exclamation mark during World War II, you had to do a full stop, then go back and do a, a... and, and I think a, a quote mark above it to make a. So it's a real effort to make a. So I think the idea that the exclamation mark is excluded from the typewriter gives some sense of how these machines are thought to be. There's no, there's not going to be any emotion when you write with a typewriter. Having said all of that, I would have loved a clear cut answer to the question of whether it completely eradicated emotion or not. I think surprisingly, one of the things that I noticed was that it really opened up, um, made room for errors. And I love errors, I love typos, I love spelling mistakes because for me, those errors really, they don't make the records illegible like handwriting does in some cases, but what they do is they disrupt that order, that order, that that mask of order that the official document tries to maintain. Um, and I love things like there's one there's one one writer who really struggled with spelling bivouac, and every time he typed it, bivouac would be spelled differently. and I just love that the that really suggested to me there's a person behind there that I'm seeing behind this official thing, having said that again, we have um and I think it it is intensified through the typewriter. there is what once was perhaps. And nudging against the controls has by the time the World War II records come around become a an accepted practice. So it's accepted now that you don't say that something is chaotic, you say that there's a lot of confusion. And for me, that wasn't nudging so much at the constraints. It's part, it's now this is how we talk about war. We again we don't mention that men are shaken or that they are are in fear we emphasize cheeriness, all of that happens again. But at the same time, what is different is that the typewriter, of course, if you type quickly, if you're an accomplished typist, it facilitates longer reports. So what I saw in my corpus of the World War II records was a number of what we now think of as after action reports. There are some in the World War One records, but they're not as detailed as the ones in the World War II records, or the ones that I saw. And what it, the, I think in these expanded reports, again, there's much more of a sense of an emotional practice. Again, sometimes very self-consciously telling a particular version of events, very self-consciously for the purposes of history. Um, there's uh, There are performances of coolness as well. There's a, a particular report of... Um, Someone who was taken as a prisoner of war and how he responded to all of that in the report is he completely downplays the horror of the situation and performs this coolness. But my favorite one of my favorite discoveries was an after action report, if you like, of the Welsh Guards during Operation Market Garden, quite an important moment in the war, um, in which two of them go off on a completely um, irregular search for alcohol uh, across France and various other places, and then come back to Nijmegen where the regiment is stationed. And that, I mean, there's so much humor in that report. And it's, it's written as an official report. And I think I love that, because that is a real instance of pushing against the constraints. And by doing that, reminding us what those constraints are, because it really highlights the formalness of them so in answer to your question i think there is an eradication of um there is more of a bureaucratic structure happening and i think we have to be again mindful of the erasure of references to chaos and fear especially but at the same time just the the uh, just opening it up to having these kind of really illicit reports is also something wonderful that Shouldn't be overlooked in histories. And they very often are because they're not you know they're not conforming to the the ideas of what we think of as ordered information,
1: yeah, absolutely. it like it takes a different kind of um, reading lens or a different literacy for like to like catch all of yeah. these things, yeah,
0: yeah. and i th- I think the other thing, thank you for saying that, because I think the other thing they do is they remind us of the complexity of warfare it's not always about horror and trauma. It can sometimes be about these weird adventures that people go on and about comradeship and other things, not just, not just what the army is hoping for as information that will allow it to wage more, war more effectively.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's like so much more remarkable when things like that make it into these exactly like, right. forms, these containers yeah, that yeah. have been created yeah. for bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of containers for bureaucracy, <laughs> your third chapter looks at how these records now exist in the archive. Um, and so I would love if you could explain to listeners where all of these records are kept now and then um, what the physical and digital mechanisms are for accessing them. Um, there's actually something you you wrote um that I really appreciated, you wrote that moments that deviate from the standard controls of the production of records do more than push at the boundaries of the structure of official documentation and the systems designed to contain and preserve it. They throw the nature and purpose of the boundaries and systems into sharp relief. Um, and I think we've been talking about that a little bit in, in the context of the forms, but in the context of archives, what questions do you think these records and the deviations inside them can help us ask about the institutions? that contain them
0: okay so um they the records of the first world war and the second world war are now held by the national archive or tna which is the official archive for um england and wales and england and wales i'm probably going to get archivists coming after me for getting that wrong but let's just say the official archive um, and that's because of the Public Records Act that has undergone a series of changes since it was first implemented in 1838. Initially, public um, government reports like this were meant to cycle into the public domain after 50 years, then it was reduced to 30 and now 20. So um, now the records of other wars, like the Falklands, um, the first Iraq war, are starting to make it into the archives. So. I think one of the things, I, TNA is, as I, I, as I say in the book, the, in, the building itself is really imposing and kind of weird to navigate if you're not used to archives, which I wasn't. I wasn't an archival scholar before coming in to, to look at this institution. So my first impression of it was this looks like a corporate space. And then moving into the, the rest of the building, um, and often when I was there, I would hear people say, but where's the stuff? yeah, you because know, it's not you know, it's not like a museum or a library. You have there are processes that you have to go through and spaces that you have to navigate, both digital and physical, in order to get to the stuff, right? Um, and then looking at things like archival description, I started thinking, well, and I'm not obviously not the only one to think this, but archival description itself creates a really linear story about where those records come from. It emphasizes um, the institutional experience of warfare rather than the individual experience of warfare because it places so much emphasis on hierarchical structures within any organization and in this case of the army. So one of the things I was struck by was how TNA's physical and digital spaces are extremely ordered spaces, they're spaces where you have to behave in a certain way, um, where you can feel out of your depth uh, if you don't know how things work, where it's quite difficult. And I have some sympathy for TNA because it is quite difficult for them to sometimes explain to people in the age of Google that you can't just enter a search term and find a record. You You have to understand how archival description works. But at the same time, all of this stuff is kind of creating a narrative that is about order and control and linearity, and then you come to the records themselves, and they're either well, the World War One records are digitized, so they are kind of contained in a in a, in a format that looks ordered, but they're you know they're masses and masses and masses of paper of of these documents. There's no hope of actually ever mastering them or coming to terms with them unless. Uh, that we use some technology or there is something still to come that allows us to do that. Or there's a massive research project that allows people to do that. And then the World War II records are these great big boxes. They come in great big boxes. And I also love the idea of the box as a container and looking at the history of that and why it was important for archiving, because in some ways it allows archiving to exist. Because it's literally, as we said, a container for these documents, and it says these things belong here together. Um, and then you have all the unexpected things that happen with that physical interaction: the smells, the um, the sense of being overwhelmed by the by how big the boxes are, and that, of course, gets lost in digital formats. But um, as uh, Stevie Doherty, my wonderful um, my wonderful person who worked on uh, transcribing all the records, points out, those digital interactions also allow for different relationships to build up with the records, like being able to zoom in on a word to try and see what it is, uh, or zoom out, or so. There are very different kinds of things that happen in these through these different technologies. Um, I think the point I'm trying to make with all of that is that the institutions do not allow you to understand how the records are so much more complex and difficult to contain or control than the system suggests. And it, I loved your your question about what do they help us understand about the institutions that use them, especially when we've got records that push against those controls. So I think firstly, they reveal the ideological um, nature of those controls. And this was something I found quite difficult writing about because they are so embedded that they can also be hard to unpick. Um, Of course, it's natural that uh, reports in war should be as concise as possible. Of course, it's natural that we should have systems that allow us to find these records easily. and and organize them in a way that is easy to understand. But underlying that is an emphasis on linearity, an emphasis on rationality. And I think that's the dangerous thing for me, is that in both cases, these systems of organizations that both the army and the archive um, exerts on these records are rational systems that also then convey the sense that war itself is a rational phenomenon and it can be understood through rational systems and controlled through rational systems. And that is just simply not the case at all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so then um, you talked a lot more about that in your conclusion, where you ask us to consider the legacy of these kinds of record keeping practices and the implications of smoothing over emotions through practices of operational reporting, and I guess also through practices of archiving. Um yeah. So what do you see as the implications for us today, both in how we now develop practices for record keeping in current conflicts and also in understanding how past records shape our ability to cope with the emotional and traumatic legacies of conflict?
0: I think one of the... The most serious legacies, and again, the records are just part of this, they're not necessarily the, you know, the prime cause of it. But I think one of the most serious legacies is the long history in the British Army and other armies, um, although some of them have dealt with it differently, of not being able to acknowledge or deal with trauma and other large emotional responses to war. And in fact, they are the organization is now trying to acknowledge things like fear and deal with that in its training. But I think when the documents upon which, when you've said that these documents are going to enable you to wage more more efficiently and effectively, so they're the prime layer of your organizational learning, when they exclude things like emotion and fear, it becomes very difficult for an organization to try and accommodate them. So I don't know what the answer to this is, but I think we need to find ways of acknowledging the messiness of um, conflict, both on an emotional level and also in terms of the chaos of industrial warfare in organizational reports, in organizational reporting. Because chaos and complexity are intrinsic to war, as are emotional responses, Um, but they're relegated to the background. So they become a kind of background hum. And I think we need to acknowledge them far more explicitly. They need to be recognized. And again, this was difficult to write about because it is so embedded, but the idea that this is okay, that we rationalize conflict, that it's okay to talk talk about jobs and in the army or in the armed forces, like we would any other form of industrial job, because that's the other thing I've, I trace across the book is the kind of origin of, of um, and I'm not again, not the only one to do this bit of war fighting as a form of industrial labor. Um, there's a craziness to that, that I think we need to challenge. I mean, there's something insane about saying, "Yeah, absolutely, go and go and join a, an organisation that will uh, that will in, in, enforce violence or promote violence uh, against other people." Now, I'm not, you know, I come from a military family. I'm not anti-military at all, but I think we need to be questioning the systems that have made it okay for for us to see war fighting as labour as no different from any other kind of industrial labor. There's a real insanity to that. Um, And I think it is becoming increasingly apparent. I mean, we are fighting very different kinds of wars to World War I and World War II now, Becoming increasingly apparent that soldiers have different kinds of roles. And actually that a different kind of emotional labor, a different form of leadership is needed in these wars. So unless we start acknowledging that, I think, um we're never going to be fighting wars effectively either in terms of emotion or in uh, dealing with soldiers emotion or in terms of understanding the chaos and complexity of combat um so i think the downplaying of trauma and of chaos has had a huge and long-lasting legacy that we are only really starting to unpick now
1: yeah absolutely yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for for sharing so much about this book. And before we wrap up, I would love, if you'd like, if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on next, if you have new projects that come out of this book, or if you're working on something completely different now. Well,
0: thank you for this. Always great to talk about things that are still happening, rather than things that are, are past. Um, So I think one of the things that struck me, and in some ways it does come out of this project, is that just like trauma and chaos are downplayed, there's almost no mention of the huge environmental impact uh, that war fighting has on animals, on ecologies, et cetera. I mean, there are a couple of really heartbreaking references to donkeys in um, the World War II records about them being um, injured in places like Myanmar Um, But beyond that, there's there's just nothing and yet it's becoming increasingly apparent and it's only now becoming recognized in various fields and those fields range from economics all the way through to law and history that industrial warfare has a really long and complex impact on the world we live in. I hesitate to say natural world because I think this is part of the problem that uh, false division between natural world and human action or human society. So I want to look at how representations of war have not, it's not just these records, it's throughout films, again, television, digital games, how they do not acknowledge this long legacy of um, environmental impact. And that has led me to thinking about how, thinking about the intersections between conflict, climate change, and media, and how these are um, playing out, not playing out in various representations. So both the historical legacy of World War One and World War II, but also thinking about how current conflicts like the war in Ukraine, which is having huge environmental impacts. Those environmental impacts are not really making it into a lot of the coverage why that happens and and just making a case for the fact that we need to think much more about these legacies and also about what's happening in the present, because as time goes on, that intersection between conflict, climate change and media are, is just going to get more and more acute as climate change drives conflict and conflict drives climate change. And both of those things are misrepresented or represented in various forms of media so
1: that sounds yeah yeah that's
0: the overarching um, thing that will, will be a series of projects hopefully coming out of those ideas
1: incredible well thank you um thank you so much for for this conversation and once again my guest today is Deborah Ramsey author of Archives of War published by Rutledge my name is Jen Hoyer and you're listening to New Books Network